Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Hi there, and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray, and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira, from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hook segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Hi, Cece and Carly. We're going to start off this week with something different. Before we dive into our query letters and opening pages, I would like to present a question to you that we got from one of our listeners. And they wrote, hi, Bianca. I love listening to your podcast as a new author working on my first novel. It's very helpful. I was wondering what your thoughts are or if there was a future episode planned about pseudonyms. My novel is based loosely on my work and past patients I have seen and would like to use a pseudonym to protect everyone's privacy. I'd love to know what agents, publishers think about that. Do they tend to shy away from projects like this? How would the marketing challenges in terms of author pick, bio, book signings, etc. be overcome with someone working under a pseudonym? Any thoughts you have would be much appreciated. So what do you both say about that? Oh, I have a lot of feelings about pseudonyms. That's a good question. I feel like I get asked about them all the time and I really never know why 
people gravitate towards it other than if you have a professional career, like a doctor, a lawyer, engineer, some sort of like professional designation, a nurse or something like that, where you feel like you do need to separate your work brand from your writing brand. Like I, I do get that. I always suggest queering with your real name. I always say that because I just want to know like who you are. Right. And I always pitch with somebody's real name. I never pitch with a pseudonym because I feel like it creates a little bit of smoke and mirrors. And I just don't like between agents and editors to have any smoke and mirrors. So I always pitch with a real name. That said, for this case, um, because it sounds like, you know, there's maybe a doctor, psychiatrist or something like that. So we know we want to make sure that, you know, they're protecting patient confidentiality. But what needs to happen in this case is actually that you need to make sure that all of these patients sign off on in your, you change their name, but you need to make sure that the patients know that a book is being written or, you know, you need their consent and approval to be writing about them, even though you will change their name. So in that way, you can keep your, your name and your brand if you're kind of establishing yourself in this space. And then you would then again, get consent from anybody that you need it, but then change their name. So that would be my take. You know, I think it's really hard in today's day and age in terms of the internet and, and what's expected of authors to have pen names, because as was mentioned in the question, the whole, like, what picture do you put? And, you know, are you going to do author signings? And how are you going to do events? And it just, it makes life so hard. And and yeah, there, there isn't a good reason, I think, to have pen names most of the time. So I try to talk people off that as much as possible. But Cece, what do you think? I think it's a great question. I feel like this is one of the, the things in publishing that, that people have a lot of assumptions about, probably because of pop culture. A lot of TV shows, a lot of movies portray, even books, portray these big, big authors who nobody really knows who they are. Like there was a whole plot thread about it in, in Younger, the TV show that's about publishing, it takes a lot of liberties with publishing. There was, it's it's the premise of this great book called Who is Maud Dixon by Alexandra Andrews. So people assume a lot of the times that pen, that pseudonyms are actually a way to, to almost assume another secret identity, right? Like nobody will really know it's you. That's not how it works in, in 2021. I don't think it's been how it how it works for a while now. If the intention is to protect the the patients or or anyone else in the book because of like doctor patient confidentiality, then I totally agree with Carly. Do what Esther Perel does, what Catherine Gildner does, what Lori Gottlieb does. Like they they seek permission, they change names, they change identifying details. It's a lot of work, but it's absolutely necessary and it's something that's that the patients will appreciate, the readers will understand. It doesn't take away from the story. And I think that it also might make sense to use pseudonyms, actually, now that I think about it, if you write in two different genres. But then again, nobody really knows the whole nobody really knows who you are thing won't apply. So there's a Canadian author called Craig Davidson who wrote this wonderful book called Precious Cargo. He also writes horror books. So he writes under the pseudonym Nick Cutter. His actual name is Craig, but he writes under Nick Cutter. So everybody knows that Nick Cutter is Craig Davidson. Everybody, it's it's like the worst kept secret in the world. It's not even a secret, but you do it to differentiate your brand. So pseudonyms, I mean, I'm not particularly a fan, but they they you might you might want one, but not to protect your identity. That's that's not going to happen. I think that's what I would say. Yeah, there's so many of these stories playing out in the press. You know, there was the whole J.K. Rowling as Robert Galbraith, but her reason there was wanting to see if you know, she had the chops to make it in publishing in a different genre. And then that secret did come come out. But obviously, after her publisher purchased it, then she had to disclose who she was and they worked around that. But something else that comes to mind for me is the whole controversy over the author A.J. Finn, author of The Woman in the Window, who is Daniel Mallory. Quite honestly, it disturbs me that more people aren't speaking about that story because he still continues to be sought out for blurbs on the back of amazing, amazing books. And every time I actually see his blurb, it puts me off buying the book because to me, it says 
says something about the publisher who's willing to seek out his uh, his approval on books. And for those who don't know about the story, please Google it. There are amazing um, articles about it. But something that I read about then is when his agent went out on submission, they went out under the pseudonym and they were hiding his real identity. And they said they were doing this to, you know, because he was an, an editor and they didn't want people to make offers based on him being an editor. But for me, it was very interesting that when most of the publishers found out his identity, quite a few of them withdrew their offers on the book. So, you know, it sometimes feels like you have something to hide that, you know, might make people a bit nervous there as well. Okay, so let us dive into today's queries. Carly, would you like to begin by reading us the first one? Absolutely. So this one is addressed to Cece, so I will present it to her. Dear Ms. Lyra, hello. I have thoroughly enjoyed your guest segments on the Shit No One Tells You About Writing podcast, and I think you might be a good fit for this manuscript based on your interest in feminist and women-centered stories that involve sisters and dysfunctional family dynamics. Redacted is 97,000 word adult speculative novel by Redacted. It has crossover potential into women's fiction, and it will appeal to readers who enjoy the speculative nature of Station Eleven, as well as the character-driven elements of books written by V.E. Schwab. When Katya's sister, Mariel, is kidnapped by the man who killed her parents over a decade prior, she will do anything to get her back into their home with the Wanderers. A smuggled note hints that all is not as it seems and forces Katya to reevaluate her own memory, her path forward, and the true meaning of family. 23-year-old Katya and her 13-year-old sister, Mariel, have lived with the nomadic outsiders known as the Wanderers for over a decade in the mountain forests of the Pacific Northwest after their home and family were destroyed by a ruthless local ruler. When Mariel is stolen away in the night, Katya is determined to rescue her at any cost until it becomes apparent that her recollections of past events may not be as accurate as she thought. With central themes around sister relationships, dysfunctional families, trauma, and LGBTQ plus content, this book explores what it really means to be a family and holding on to hope in the darkest of times. The author currently resides in Western Washington with her husband, three-year-old daughter, an adventurous but grumpy terrier. Currently, she's working on the sequel to this novel while juggling the responsibilities of managing a retail store, building a house, and wrangling the tiny terrors that make life all the fuller. I hope you enjoy the first five pages. Thank you, Carly. So, Cece, since it was addressed to you, would you like to tell us what you think of the query letter? Sure. It's a really well-written query letter. I think the the writer really nailed the the first two paragraphs. What I would say is that so by the time I reach the third paragraph, I'm confused because there's a line that says, when Katya's sister's Mariel is kidnapped by the man who killed their parents over a decade prior, she'll do anything to get back to their home with the Wanderers. And I'm not quite understanding what getting back to the, her home has to do with like saving her sister. If that's the intention, I assume it is. So I didn't really understand that. And then the next sentence mentioned the smuggled note. I also didn't understand how that fit into the, the story. I was just a little confused. And then when I reached the fourth paragraph, it felt like it was almost introducing the story for a second time. My one note about that paragraph is I'm not sure what the past events are or what they have to do with the plot. So here's what I would advise the, the author if I was meeting with her. Switch paragraphs four and three, right? Or even remove three altogether. If you decide to keep three, please clarify the last sentence as I have no idea what it means. And please explain why Katya's response to her sister being kidnapped is wanting to return to the Wanderers because I don't get it. Also, this book seems to rely heavily on world building. And then I'm not quite sure what that world building is based on this query letter. And I think I would like to know that because if it is like speculative, dystopian or, or you know, something that again has, has a lot of world building in it, I'm interested. I think it's really cool, but could I get a line with the hook? I, I would love to know that. So I would include that. And then finally, I loved the last paragraph because 
she mentioned her adventurous but grumpy terrier. And that is my English bulldog as well, except he's grumpy but grumpy. He's not adventurous at all. He just wants to sleep. I would say though, my advice would say to would be to not include that this that you're working on a sequel. Whether this is right or wrong, publishers like standalone novels. You can still secretly work on the sequel, but don't include it in the query letter. That's something you can discuss with your agent down the line. It's not to discourage you to continue working on this at all. Just there's no need to say that on the query letter. I would keep it to yourself. That would be my advice. But great job. Just on that. So I think authors include that because they want to show that they this isn't just a once off like idea for them. They don't just have one book in them that they have multiple books, but then perhaps better to say they're working on their next novel as opposed to specifying that it is the, the sequel. Okay, Carly, what did you think? Yeah, just to add on to what we were just saying there. Um, I usually tell people to say it has series potential. That's kind of the wording that I always suggest people use because it's, I'll, I'll start at this point, because it really only, you can only have a sequel if the first book is successful, right? <laughs> so there is no more books unless this book is a smash hit. So we really have to focus on that. But, you know, I think it's okay to say it has series potential, you know, to be honest. But yeah, that, that conversation usually comes up a little bit later with the agent in terms of crafting your career and, and you know, your vision for that long-term goal that you should be setting with your agent. Okay, now I'll go back up to the top. So overall, I, I was having a lot of trouble kind of placing this in the market mentally. So we have, it's addressed, uh, it starts at the top, sorry, with the speculative novel. Has crossover potential into women's fiction. Will appeal to readers who enjoy the speculative nature. And so my mind was just kind of doing some mental gymnastics because, you know, when I think of women's fiction with a speculative angle, I'm kind of more thinking, I think the author means like book club potential, not really women's fiction potential. I think they mean like book club potential because the books that come to mind when I think of like women's fiction with a bit of a speculative hook are books like Farm, which was an awesome book, just, you know, about women's fertility and that sort of thing with, you know, a little bit of a, you know, tech angle to it. I think of Age of Miracles, which is a slightly speculative, but ultimately rests on like a bit of a family dynamic. So I'm starting to think of these things. And I think, you know, Station Eleven had a lot of book club potential, but yes, it's ultimately a speculative novel. So, you know, I was just, again, trying to do the mental gymnastics to figure out what's happening here. And then we kind of get into, whenever we're getting into world building, like we're not women's fiction. So world building overrides a genre like women's fiction. So ultimately this is a speculative novel with female characters, you know? So I would just, you know, really just emphasize for the for the author to, you know, be more firmly in that territory. I, I think it has, it can have book club potential, but yeah, I, I definitely think it's fully speculative. I thought there was a lot of really interesting things here. I mean, the hard thing with queries like this is you're just trying to jam so much information, get all of the really fun details, like, you know, the parents' death and the wanderers. Like I, I really, as I always say, I empathize with people writing query letters because there's just so much information to jam into this. And I think that we hit on some really interesting things. And as an agent who often reads 20, 50 queries in one setting, like I'm often looking for keywords, right? And things like, you know, kidnap, smuggled note, sister stuff, dysfunctional families, trauma. Like these are all keywords that are interesting to me. So I wouldn't really hold that over this author that maybe it didn't have the amount of, you know, connection that CC was talking about. I think in an ideal world, a perfect query would be able to accomplish all of this and make all of those connecting details a bit more sensical. But I think we cover enough interesting content here that an agent would be interested. You know, of course, we all we all want perfect queries, but, you know, we don't live in a perfect world. So I think good enough sometimes is, is good enough to get an agent's attention, right? Other than that, I think I was kind of hoping for a little bit more of a redemptive arc. You know, we're talking about a lot of dark stuff, you know, world building, stolen away in the night, you know, and then we get into the central theme, sister relationships, dysfunctional families, you know, trauma, all of this sort of stuff. Um, and the book explores what it means to be a family holding on to hope in the darkest of times. And so hope is like we have one like little word hope, but still in the darkest of times. And I was just wondering like how 
redemptive of this arc is it like I just don't think I could read a book that just doesn't have any sort of uplifting moments right now and a lot of ed- every editor call that I talked like every editor call I'm having everybody's just saying we're a little bit bogged down with dark because of the state of the world right now and everything so just trying to focus on what that kind of uplifting part is and that redemptive arc I think would be something that I would personally cling to a little bit just in terms of my taste other than that I also agree with Cece I think the author bio was perfect and adorable and and just the right amount of like snark cute honest you know a little bit of personality yeah I I really enjoyed the author bio I think it's amazing that Emily St. John Mandel that Station Eleven wasn't her first novel because if it was I would have loved to have seen that query letter trying to you know put Station Eleven in like a paragraph or two and sending that out to agents I think that would have been incredibly difficult so much easier since it was a a subsequent novel of hers okay Cece what do you think of those opening pages I really enjoyed the opening pages the author kept us in scene all the time I knew who was there I knew who the character was talking to I was always immersed in the moment and I really appreciated that if I had to give her notes it would be so in terms of minor notes so the, the protagonist is called Katya when her dad is talking to her mom we see his accent being spelled out phonetically so for example when he says the word you he says it yeah and this is totally a personal preference it's entirely up to the writer but I feel like writing out accents phonetically can be really jarring it can take me away from the scene especially if it's right in the beginning it probably wouldn't have distracted me as much if it had been like 10% or 20% into the novel I wouldn't recommend it I think if you want your reader to know that his yous sound like yeah the narrator can share that right like you can still write it out normally and then have the narrator do that heavy lifting with the dialogue tags that would be a very minor note and then a second minor note would be on page four Katya is asking her mom like mama why do we have to move um, as she's scrubbing the floorboards with a small rag that had seen much better days and again a great another shout out to the author for always keeping us in scene it's it, it, this was really good what I would say about that is that it felt a little like info dumping because I'm pretty sure that since they're like in the process of moving Katya has already asked her mom so her mom wouldn't have given her that lengthy answer I know that kids often ask the same thing over and over again but her mom explained it to her as though it was the first time and and I don't think that's quite believable but again very minor note not a big deal the big picture note I would offer is that the first paragraph felt tonally different from the rest of the scene I wonder if that's intentional it's not necessarily a bad thing but if I were you know giving feedback like one-on-one feedback um, to this author I would ask her about it I would ask like was it your intention to have that first paragraph seem really mature you know it felt like she was looking back and telling a story breaking the fourth wall really talking to the reader I kept expecting this this person the protagonist like in the future to keep popping up throughout the, the pages right like a line here and there carefully placed to remind us that there is a narrator with control over the story, someone who's looking back. And that didn't happen. Um, we had that first paragraph and then we were immersed in the scene without this, this narrator who kept reminding us that that she was there. So it's not necessarily a good or bad thing. It's I would also have to read more to know if this if the narrator comes back. But I would I would want to talk to the author about it. That will be my note. Great. Thanks, Cece. Carly, what did you think? Hmm. As I mentioned uh, when we were discussing the query, you know, I just had a lot of market questions in my head. So right as soon as I read the first paragraph, it was very clear to me, you know, this was speculative, right? I wasn't always a capital W wanderer. So if, when we're in, into world building, that kind of solidified for me exactly, you know, what, what kind of space we're in. I really liked the the kind of accent for the dad. I was kind of reading it like a Scottish accent in my head. I, I really enjoyed that. I think that it, it was a bit jarring at first, but I think I got into it pretty, pretty, 
pretty quickly and, and obviously showed the differentiation between the characters. I did think we kind of got out of the plot a little bit right away. We're kind of leaving. And then we get into like, my mother was a sturdy, muscular woman, like, you know, a lot of that descriptor stuff. So I would have really, I think, liked to see, to stay in the scene in terms of dialogue, in terms of like packing up and things like that, because they're they're, they're leaving their, their homeland or, or area or homestead. One line I really liked that I highlighted and I thought was really beautiful. I'll just read out for you guys. My mother was a whirlwind. My father was a forest. I just thought that was a really beautiful line. So I wanted to give a shout out to that. Other than that, I had a bit of a issue with the fact that we were in first person. And yet I felt like the dialogue was quite leading. You know, there was things like, you know, the brother says Katya's name in dialogue. And then she also repeats his name back to him in dialogue. That always kind of drives me a little bit nuts. I think that's just one of my pet personal pet peeves. So I kind of, I always just kind of, you know, my shoulders get up near my ears when, when I read stuff like that. So yeah, I just thought if we're in first person, there is no reason to be leading us, the reader, in terms of where we want to go because you're in the driver's seat. And by using this dialogue, I felt like it just didn't show the amount of strength of the narrator and strength of the power of first person that I would have wanted it to have. So for me, I just thought there's some work to do there in terms of claiming that as the proper POV, and, you know, exactly what you were trying to do, a little bit less leading the reader into how you want them to feel in, in terms of that dialogue. I was a little bit confused on whether, you know, this was ultimately going to be YA or adult because it felt a little bit YA to me um, in the sense of, again, first person of a, a of a girl with a baby sister. So in that way, like it was just hard for me to wrap around the fact that this could possibly be an adult novel. So I'm wondering if we're just starting this in the wrong place, to be honest with you. I often feel that adult novels, even if we're going back in time, if it's dual POV, we, an adult novel should start with an adult voice. So I I just, again, wasn't, wasn't clear on whether that was ultimately the best place, but there's a lot of really interesting things happening here. And I also think this ends at an awesome place. You know, it ends with the Lord of the region kind of coming in and seeing them packing up. And I, I think he's trying to claim his, you know, his money for the land or checking up on them and he sees them packing up and kind of saying, hey, what's going on here? So I thought that was a really awesome ending. So yeah, I think there's a lot of good stuff happening here. But in terms of kind of like submitting to agents, I just feel like, you know, there's a little bit of finessing to do, but but there's a lot of really good building block here. Wonderful. Thanks, Carly. All right, great. So let's move on to our second query letter. Cece, would you like to read that for us? Dear Miss Lyra and Ms. Waters, I've been listening to the Books with Hooks segment of the Shit No One Tells You About Writing podcast since it launched. I follow you both on Twitter and Instagram and appreciate the publishing insight you provide to emerging authors. Ms. Lyra recently posted that she was interested in a manuscript that was in the vein of Promising Young Woman, and I believe my story may be of interest. Please note the following includes mentions of sexual abuse, assault, and suicide, and could be triggering. I am seeking representation for Title X, an 80,000-word adult memoir infused with the psychology of trauma, coping addictions often cloaked in shame for women, and the charade of living a double life. Title X includes themes explored in Stephen McQueen's film Shame, the lingering effects of sexual trauma shown in Know My Name by Chanel Miller, and the inspiration of Brene Brown's I Thought It Was Just Me. Beginning at age five, to gain back the control lost by sexual abuse endured at the hands of my half-brother, I vowed to be perfect. By age 30, I was living the public perception of a charmed life. I was an Emmy 
and Associated Press Award-winning sports reporter in front of the camera and a loyal wife and beaming new mom. But privately, I was battling sexual addiction, porn addiction, perfectionism, dissociation disorders, and rage. So on a family trip back to my Texas hometown with a bottle of Jose Cuervo Gold tucked under the car seat and my weekend bag stocked with several freshly refilled prescription bottles, I was ready to put an end to the secrets that threatened my marriage and my career. Little did I know that my life would be spared by a song by Elmo, yes, the Muppet, and a sign in front of a good old-fashioned Texas barbecue joint. From suicide plan to treatment facility to launching a nonprofit organization, my story chronicles and dissects all of the trials along the way to my personal healing. I graduated from the Texas A&M University Journalism Program in 2001. I have been a writer and a reporter for WFAA-TV in Dallas and KLTV in Tyler, Texas. I am currently a freelance journalist and frequent contributor for The Redacted and a sideline reporter for Redacted. My work has been featured on Fox Sports College as well as ESPN 2 and 3. My print work has also appeared on BlackGirlsNerds.com, Dave Campbell's Texas Football and In Magazine, and Redacted. My nonprofit, Redacted, supports women who have survived childhood abuse and assault and their partners, spouses, family, and friends. My aim with this memoir is to further this mission. Thank you very much for your time and consideration. I have provided the first five pages of title X below. My best, author X. Thank you so much, Cece. Okay, Carly, would you like to tell us what you thought of the query letter? Absolutely. So just in terms of structure, I want to tackle some of the themes later, but I'm just going to tackle structure first. So I thought that in the kind of middle paragraph, I think we could have moved things around a little bit. Because again, if we're writing a book for adults, I kind of want to start with like where we are at age 30, instead of beginning at age five, you know, and then building up to it. So again, starting where we are with the current age, I think would be great. So I would just kind of change that wording around. So start with by age 30 and then the beginning at age five, maybe move that to after beaming new mom. Um, that would be important for me. I really, and now we're just talking about the theme. So I, I love that we're talking about these types of women's health and mental health issues. It's very important to me that we talk about them and, and you know, break the stereotypes and, and make sure that we're communicating about them. I feel like, unfortunately, we get a lot of queries like this and it makes me sad because, you know, clearly there are a lot of women struggling out there. And based on the amount of queries that I see about this and the amount of books on the market about this, we have a big gap. You know, there's a lot of women talking about this. There's not a lot of books published about this. And so I think a lot of people think that, you know, they're going to write the book that breaks through. They're going to write the book that, you know, is able to be the, the cornerstone of, of survivors to be able to talk about this. And so one of the things that when I when I see a query about sexual abuse and assault and in this sort of in this sort of space, especially child abuse, is that is the author writing this for themselves in terms of a therapeutic way to, you know, the journaling sense or, you know, a therapy to kind of get this out? Or are they writing this for the marketplace? And as, you know, as agents who work in the big five sector, mostly obviously with also large independents, you know, it's very important that we think about, you know, can this book reach tens of thousands of readers based on the hook of the book? And so I was kind of kind of trying to come back and figure out what 
is the hook of the book. And I think ultimately if the hook is this, the sexual abuse and child abuse, it's a tough hook, right? Like we, I just, I don't think as an agent, I can sell that hook. We also have, you know, the fact that memoirist, the author here, the protagonist has a bit of a road trip story, but ultimately it's, it's a, it's a personal battle with mental health. And so I would just try to encourage the author to frame this around the hook a bit more to make the hook more central because CC and I always say memoirs have to read like novels. So, so yeah, I just think they're in terms of, again, the market, the placing exactly, you know, when I think with my agent brain about what has to happen here, I think that we just have to frame this as how is this hook big enough to sustain sales of tens of thousands of readers. And I just think this query doesn't illustrate that to me, unfortunately, but it's so important and so, so important. So, so I'm, I'm so glad that, you know, this person has shared this with us. And I also just wanted to kind of come back to the trigger warning. And I just want to read it again and, and just kind of talk about that a bit. So it says, please note the following includes mentions of sexual abuse, assault, and suicide and could be triggering. I just want to applaud this author for doing this. I think this is excellent. I think that, you know, you're preparing us for what's to come. Obviously, you know, you're, you're kind of letting us know what's to come. I don't find that trigger warnings or content warnings are spoiler alerts. I personally believe that they are showing that you are sensitive to human beings who might go through something and could also be a survivor of something and, and bring their own personal history with them when they're reading this. So I, I think that's great. I also wanted to talk about, you know, trigger warnings and content warnings in general. I, I did a Twitter thread on this back in mid-April and I was talking about the whole concept of content warnings and trigger warnings and what they're for. And I got a lot of really interesting responses. A lot of authors said, oh, I hadn't even thought of that. And, you know, oh, that's really important. And I'm going to include that now. So I think we are making a movement towards having more trigger warnings and content warnings, which which I think is great. And I want to encourage everybody to think about them and, and, and just make sure that you are preparing the person reading the query or reading the submission for what is to come. They're not meant to be restrictive. It's no passing of judgment. It's just, just presenting us with the information so that we can prepare ourselves for that type of content. If I was a survivor of, of a situation like this, I might not want to work on it, you know, and it would be a pass for me. Or I could be a survivor that does want to work on like a book like this. Or as somebody who is not a survivor of this, I still feel like it's bringing up a lot of feelings because it's a, a traumatic event, right? So, you know, just be, just being sensitive to the reader about this. So there's a lot of things that, you know, in general, you might want to include a trigger warning for, for example, things like eating disorders. That might be something. Another common thing is fertility uh, or infertility issues. That's another thing you might want to include a trigger warning for. Racism, sexism, misogyny, classism, you know, hateful language, you know, just preparing us for whatever it is to come. And some people would hear me talking about this and say, well, that's a spoiler alert. And I don't want to include a spoiler alert, you know, in my query. But I just, again, want to encourage everybody to just be sensitive. It's more important to include trigger warnings or content warnings than it is to feel like going to give all the details because we're, we might read your synopsis anyway, and it might have, you know, all of the details in it. So just again, preparing us for the reality of the content um, is really important. So just wanted to, you know, highlight that, draw a little bit of attention to that and, and underscore the importance because I, I know it's been coming a lot up a lot in the industry. And so, you know, again, once you guys hear this, tweet at me, let me know what you think at Carly Waters. And if you want to see the, the Twitter thread that I did about this, it was on April 15th. Those are my thoughts. Yeah. And an agent can always ignore it if they're not interested, you know, if they don't need the content warning, they can always just gloss over that. Cece, what did you think of the query letter? Yeah, I, I absolutely agree with Carly's take. I thought it was a very well-written query letter. The writer did a great job of covering everything that we asked writers to cover, right? Like that was, it was very good. My two notes were one, I wanted the hook to be a little bit more clear, um, which Carly covered and I agree. And I also very much appreciate the, the trigger warnings. I, you know, I would include 
include also anything that has to do with animal cruelty. I absolutely cannot read about animal cruelty. So it's something that I just won't even read. And I will say that, you know, to anyone who says that it's a spoiler, if the interesting factor in your book depends on me not knowing that the domestic violence, for example, is going to show up, then you haven't written a good book. Like, I am so sorry, right? Like if reading a line that says trigger warning for domestic violence, again, I'm using this as an example, you could fill in, fill that in with anything else. That does not remove the interesting factor in a book for me, right? Like I will still read the story. I will still want to know how does it, how does it happen? When does it happen? To whom does it happen? It takes away nothing. Honestly, it's not a big deal. I don't think it's a spoiler alert, but if it is, then I think that's on your book. Not, not on, not on the concept. That's my personal take. I just wanted to add one thing about the trigger warning for this book. I would just specify whether this is on the page or whether, so this person says includes mentions of sexual assault and abuse. I would just specify whether it's just on the page or themes of it, because I think that also changes things a little bit. So maybe even just specify. Wonderful. Cece, would you like to dive into those opening pages? I want to commend the writer for keeping us immersed in scene all the time. It feels like we used to talk about how writers weren't doing that and now they've been doing it and it's great. You've been listening to us on the podcast. We so appreciate it. It's very well written. I know exactly who the protagonist is. I know what her struggles are. I am, like I said, immersed in scene. She's carrying a secret, which is also essential. So that is all great. Here is my big note. And I want to preface this by saying that critiquing a memoir is especially challenging because it can seem like you're critiquing someone's life, the way someone lives, right? And I don't want to do that. And that's not what I'm trying to do. Your life is your own and you live it however you want. The telling of your life though, the framing of it into a story, that's what I'm critiquing. And here, what I would tell the author is that it's starting in the wrong place. I've only read five pages in a query letter, but I'm pretty confident on on this note. I say this because the protagonist is steeped in inactive emotion. She's clearly depressed. She's given up on life. She has decided to end things. And while this is very emotional and it's a very emotional place to start a novel, it's not a place that makes the reader wonder, oh, what happens next? Truth be told, I read this and I felt incredibly sad. My heart shrank to the size of a raisin, but I didn't feel curious. I don't think I know enough about the protagonist to feel curious. I mean, yes, there's the obvious question. Why does she want to kill herself? Especially because we see her having a husband and a son. And so you obviously think about things of what about your child? What about your husband? And the protagonist does cover that. So again, brava, great job with the writing, but it's a generic question, right? Like why does someone want to kill themselves is a generic question. And it's one that I would ask of any human being who had just shared that they want to end things. And see, the thing is curiosity needs to be specific. When it comes to a story, we need to be specifically curious about that character situation. And yeah, I just want to say like, I know that this might sound insensitive and it's not my intention at all, but the harsh reality with memoir is that it's even harder to write than fiction. Not many people get that. People often assume that because it's their story, they know it so well. And so writing it will be easy and fast. But in fact, it's a much bigger challenge than writing fiction because we don't clearly see ourselves and those around us with the perspective necessary to form a compelling narrative arc. And we don't have the advantage of getting to make stuff up, right? So if I were working with this author, what I would get her to do is write an outline so we could figure out the most compelling entry point into her story. It's what I call a 
scene point outline. Right now, I don't know what that would be because I don't have her outline in front of me. But given that she mentioned that her book is in the vein of Promising Young Woman, I'm pretty sure there's a really interesting scene that we could add there as an entry point into the novel that would keep me curious. And then we could have the beautiful, beautifully written scene steeped in sadness that's also essential. Thank you, Cece. Carly, what are your thoughts? I thought on a line level, this was a really, really well done piece. For somebody that had a lot of questions about the query, I was blown away by the pages. I thought that the writing was really good, as I said, just on a line level. And I liked how detached it was because it's just so real. (laughs) I mean, this author is so skilled that they realize that they are a character in their own life and they are writing it in a way that that is detached and going through this depression. And I just thought it was really well done. And going right, you know, on page two, we're already into dialogue that her boy is kind of knocking on the door, wants to kind of come in and she's trying to figure out her pill situation. It just felt like a novel to me. And and that's so key. You you always hear us harping on this podcast about how memoirs have to read like novels. So ultimately, I didn't really have any notes. I just, as I said, from somebody who was a little bit wary about the query letter, I really came around through the pages. But this just goes to show you how important the query letter is, because if I maybe didn't request these pages, I would have never have known, um, you know, how great this writing was. So, so yeah, I thought I still have those questions about, you know, the market in terms of who this book is for, all of that sort of thing. But on a line level, I just want to do a big applause. Wonderful. Thanks, Carly. This is just a reminder that as at the recording of this, we still haven't reached our 100 review goal on the Apple US podcast platform. As soon as we reach that reviews, not ratings, we will be opening it up to a giveaway in which three lucky winners will either get Carly, myself or Cece to review the first 50 pages of their manuscript, which works out to about roughly 15,000 words. So make sure you review and look out for that giveaway as soon as that launches. Also a reminder that I have multiple courses coming up over the next few months. Some of them are standalones, some of them are longer courses. Please go to my website at biancamaray.com. And just a reminder that CC has a course coming up called From Memories to Memoir, Turning Your Life's Journey into a Book. It'll be a 90-minute session offered via Zoom on May 20th with time for Q&A. There'll be lots of practical tips on how to plan outline and write a memoir plus a giveaway option where writers are invited to submit their pitch and first pages for a chance to be featured on the webinar. Anyone who can't attend live but wishes to watch the webinar should sign up anyway because the link will be emailed to them 24 hours later. You can find the link to book for this on CC's Instagram. We just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, 
it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the Shit No One Tells You About Writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Today's guest really needs no introduction. You've heard us speaking about her so many times on the podcast, but here is the intro. Lily King is the award-winning author of the novels The Pleasing Hour, The English Teacher, Father of the Rain, and Euphoria, one of the New York Times book reviews, 10 best books of 2014, a finalist for the National Book Critics Circle Award, and winner of the Kirkus Prize. Also author of Writers and Lovers. She lives in Maine and it's my pleasure to welcome Lily King. Lily, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for allowing me to stalk you on social media to the point that all of our listeners were putting so much pressure on you to please do an interview with me. (laughs) I'm so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. What kills me is that up until about a month or two ago, I wasn't familiar with your work. And then I have this podcast and we have two amazing literary agents who come on every week and read 
read query letters and opening pages to give feedback to listeners. And they were constantly carrying on about writers and lovers, writers and lovers. And we had a few people who submitted books about writing. And as agents, they said, look, editors don't really like books about writers or writing, etc. And then they go, but of course, Lily King's book is the exception. And that's amazing. <laughs> and everyone must read it. And then I read it and I was like, oh my God, I can understand why everybody loves this book. Was it a difficult book to pitch in terms of it being about writing and a writer or not? Because I mean, you've had such success. So I suppose your editor will let you write about any damn thing you want. I know I don't um I don't have to pitch my books because I, I never sell them before I've written them. I'm too scared to do that. I just I, I can't. I think I would just freeze up. Um and so they she never I've worked with the same editor for all of my books, but she never knows, never has any idea what's coming. I try really hard not to talk about it with her because I want her to read it completely fresh and not have any preconceptions or any idea of any of the struggles that I've had. I really want her to read it like a reader. Right. And uh, and so, yeah, I, this one, I did write the first draft and I did, so I, I did sell it before it was completely done. And she saw initially 40 pages, but at that point like that, there was no other pitch. There was no other idea. So she either had to take it or leave it. <laughs> Well, and I read somewhere that after Euphoria, you started two other novels, scrapped both of them, and then started writing Writers and Lovers. And, you know, that's so encouraging for our listeners to hear because they feel like this only happens to them, that it doesn't happen to writers of your caliber. So could you speak a bit about that? Yeah, I've had a number of novels that I've abandoned. And thankfully, I I know pretty soon into it. And I I think, I I mean, I, I think when I get to 200 pages, I also think I know and I should abandon it, but it's too late. And so I never do, but I talk about it a lot and I think about it a lot. So I'm, I'm used to that feeling of not feeling like something is going well. I mean, it never, ever feels like it's going well, but with the, after euphoria, I did, I, I had another idea. I was really into it. I did a ton of research and uh, I took a lot of notes and thought I knew what I was doing and wrote about 20 pages and I got a better idea. I, I, that's all I can say is that I, I feel feel like that would have been fine. I would have finished it, but I was more attracted to something else. And I didn't have, you know, obviously I didn't have the commitment to it that I needed. And so then I had another idea, did a ton of research, took a lot of notes. was very, very excited about this book and it was going well, but then my mother died really suddenly. And I just, I could never, ever even open that notebook. I mean, I could not go near that novel and, uh, and, and not because it wasn't going well. I was excited about it, but it was about a mother, son, traveling in Europe in 1901. And it just suddenly felt very, very, very far away. Like it was conceived by somebody else. So then I didn't write for months and months. And then when I did get an idea, it was this one. I saw Casey in the driveway with the dog and Adam, and I knew she had a novel in her potting shed and I knew her mother had just died. And I was like, oh, thank God. You know, I, I, I need to somehow write about these feelings that I've been having. Yeah. I've just gotten goosebumps. As you said, that goosebumps Uh everywhere, because I mean, of course, the novel is is so much about grief. You know, it's it's just like saturated into every single page. But also what you just said about seeing Casey in the driveway, because I also read in an interview you gave in which once you know that opening paragraph and that opening scene, then it's good to go. You can just find your way into, into the story. And so that came to you fully formed and then the rest came from that. 
Yeah. I mean, once I just try it out and if I get the voice, you know, that's kind of when I'm good to go. And I know that, 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 that I can tell the story that I have a voice for the story. Sometimes, you know, it just doesn't happen, but, but I, I, I must've felt something when I started writing that she just, she just kind of came to me pretty yeah. fully formed. Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's so much to unpack in this book and all we've got time for what I want to focus on today is really the writing side of it, because there's so much in this book that as a writer, you can relate to. There were so many instances that I was like, oh my God, yes, yes. Like I've been through this. Yes. Mm -hmm. So those are the things I'm going to ask you to, to focus on today. And so I'm going to read a few of uh, bits of your work back to you. I hope you don't mind. There's, there's a part where Casey stands up and says her novel is the place where I am most myself. Maybe some of you have found this place already. Maybe some of you will find it years from now. My hope is that some of you will find it for the first time today by writing. And that just like resonated with me. It just, I was just like, yes, yes, that's where I'm most myself. And Mm -hmm. something that, you know, I hear so often from my creative writing students and our listeners and women, especially, it seems to be that doubt plagues women writers, especially. It's it's not even imposter syndrome. It's just women feel like they don't have anything to say and that nobody will care. And I heard that echoed to me in this novel. Could you speak a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, it's not surprising. I mean, women have been told for centuries that they had nothing to say, that they had nothing to offer, that they belonged in the kitchen, that they belonged with the children, that they, you know, could not have a driver's license, have a credit card, you know, have a hysterectomy, a medical procedure, not until the something like 60s or something like that without without a man's permission. I mean, it, it is in our DNA, you know, and so we have to fight like hell against that. And and I had no idea that that is what I would write about in this novel. I, I didn't know that I had so much to say about men and women and writing and men and women in the restaurant industry or men and women in general in this culture. And that was kind of, you know, know, it was exhilarating to find it. I didn't even really realize it until I started having readers and people started commenting on it. So it wasn't like I had an agenda. I just, I, you know, what she felt just kind of came out of me and she was really observant and kind of angry, you know? And so it just, it just came out. And I, I do feel like, I feel like men suffer in a different way from incredibly high expectations that are put in them on them from birth that they put on themselves. And so if they're just kind of middling at their career or they're, you know, there's this thing that kicks in that, that makes them feel like the world is denying them their glory. You know, I think women feel like if they're failing, it's their fault. And men feel like if they're failing, it's other people's fault. Yeah. That, <laughs> A huge generalization. And I think it's changing a lot, but I think with my generation of men, I think that's how they were raised. Yeah. And they came across in the book that she has, I mean, even in the opening pages, it's, it's her neighbor, well, her landlord, the person that she's renting from. And he asks about her book and he goes, how many pages have you got now? And she says a couple hundred maybe. And it says, you know, he says, pushing himself off his car, waiting for my full attention. I just find it extraordinary that you think you have something to say say. And that was like on page two and my blood started <laughs> boiling. 
And, and, and here you show this other writer so perfectly who comes to a reading where there's a ton of people there for him, but he just doesn't feel like there's enough adoration and that he deserves so much more. Right. right. Yeah. I, I mean, it, it, it is so interesting. I, I noticed it at the Oscars. I don't know if you watched the Oscars on Sunday night. I watched a little, little pieces of it, but some white guy got up and accepted an award. And he's like, he's like, oh, I never dreamed of getting this award. And then he said, oh, that's not true. I've been rehearsing this speech since I was five years old and I was like that's it that's what you have that we don't have you know I feel like we need to accept as women writers that it's just going to be there it's ingrained in us and the only way you can get past it is to just muzzle that voice just tell it to shut up and you just sit down and write anyway right yeah yeah and it's not necessarily coming from you it's coming you know from the culture it's oozing in through many many different ways and it's not your fault that you feel that way and it's true just ignoring I, I just try to ignore the critic. I always tell myself, just ignore the critic uh, as much as I possibly can. I mean, the only time the critic critic is useful is when you're revising and you do, you do need a critical eye, but you don't need a machete, you know, like I don't, I I, I don't know. You just need a critical eye on your, on your words, but you don't need a character assassination. And I think it's taken me years to, to not, you know, to, to learn how to not hate myself, you know, it's so important. It's necessary. To, to to getting the work done. Yeah, it's just, it's giving yourself that permission and saying, I have something to say and there will be people out there who care about what I have to say, you know, and, and just giving yourself that permission. And like yeah. you say, the critical voice is important when you're editing and when you're revising, but having that voice shouting at you as you're sitting down to try and draft, that's, you know, that that is the enemy of creativity. Yeah, so it is. Yeah. And I also think that that I never know what I have to say until, it's written. And and I think that's that that's one of the points I was really trying to get across in that scene is that, yeah, she doesn't think she has anything to say. She has no idea what she's going to say, but she's going to write anyway. And, and she's going to figure it out, you know, because everybody has something to say. You know, if you're really, really, really paying attention and listening to yourself and, and doing your best work, you do have something to say, but you don't necessarily know what it is until it's done. Yeah, I love that. And there were so many parts that I could relate to. So Casey, gives the manuscript when it's done to the very first person who's going to read it. And this is her writer friend, Muriel. And can I just say to all of you out there, find your Muriel. Yes. Every writer needs a Muriel. This person who champions you, who champions your work, who's your cheerleader. And I just love the Muriel character. But then Casey's waiting for this feedback and Muriel's kind of nervous to read it because of course, if she doesn't like it, what is she going to say to Casey? And then she does come (laughs) back and she has wonderful things to say and that relief is just so palpable is this part of your you you know do you have close friends writer friends who read your work as you're going along or do you wait until it's done and then you share it with them Mm, that's a really good question I have a writers group here and we have been together for almost 20 years and we meet we try to meet every month and we don't usually make it and I don't I'm not a kind of person who wants to show my work along the way I really like to get it to do the most that I possibly can alone before I show it to anybody else. And so usually I just hand in a manuscript to them and give them, you know, a month or two to read it. And then we reconvene. And then I, I just listen to everything they have to say. And I take notes and I don't say a word until the end. I think we, we allow at the end, the authors are allowed to speak for about five minutes. But what we also do on, in our monthly meetings, because we're all novelists and we don't, we, we can go long, long periods of time without having anything to read. 
And uh, so we have something called airings, which is you just choose one to three pages, you read them out loud, and nobody is allowed to say anything except that was really nice. Like no criticism, no anything. It's just, I don't know what it is, but it, it really helps. It really, obviously you choose a couple of pages that you're, you, you kind of like that, you know, you're not horrified by. And uh, boy, it really, it really keeps me going. Just, just reading a couple of pages. So that's what we do. And then I give it to them and then I give it to my husband and then I give it to my, after that, after I do another revision, I give it to my agent and then my, and my editor. What you've just described your airings sounds very much like the Amherst writers method. So there's this form of facilitation in writing called the Amherst, Amherst writers method where people get together and they do writing prompts and they kind of write for 10 minutes and then they share the work, which is, I mean, it's a shitty first draft because yeah, exactly. you've just written it, right? Yeah. But people just say what they liked about it. And I feel like as writers, we spend so much time hearing what's wrong with our yeah, writing. So that, that that airing sounds amazing. I actually think I'm going to start that with my writing groups now oh, as good. well. I love oh, that. Good, good. good. And, okay. I want to ask you about your writing group. <laughs> no, no, I'm interviewing you, Lily. So another thing that I want to read, and I just love this as well. Casey and Muriel are together and they're chatting about writing. And here's this, this part that unfolds. So it goes, Muriel says, I think I'm nervous about that scene. You mean the lake scene? Yeah. Muriel got the idea for the lake scene before anything else. All the other ideas grew around it. I'm getting all wobbly about it. (laughs) You just need to write it out and get it over with. I don't know why I feel this way. It's like performance anxiety or something. What if I can't get it up? Your readers will just spoon you and tell you it doesn't matter in the least and that it happens to everyone. And oh my God, I was laughing at that. And it just, I was, I, I could relate to that so much because I feel like every writer, when they sit down to write a book, there is something that is hugely emotional, something pivotal that they know can like make or break the book. But then you keep tiptoeing around it because you're terrified to write that scene. Yes. Yes. No. And and it's often like a culmination scene like that, you know, which I think is why, you know, she compares it to an orgasm because you're, it's true. You're just, everything in the book is leading up to it. It's leading up to it. And what if, you know, you just can't make it as big and wonderful as you want it to be. I always feel that. My yeah. I, it's just terrifying. It, I mean, it's this big, big match temperament thing. It's like, you know, rising to the occasion. I mean, when she says, what if, it's if I can't get it up? Well, they'll spoon you. When you have those kinds of scenes in a novel that you're working towards, do you like put off writing them? Do you mm. procrastinate writing them? Or are you like, I'm going to write this damn scene first, get it out the way, and then I'll come back to it later? Or is it different for every book you write or every scene? No, I think I do it the same way. And that is that I I don't want to write it until I know everything that is feeding into it, you know? And so I have to get there kind of organically and chronologically, or at at least, you know, chronologically within the way the book is reads. And uh, I I did, I mean, I I, I think I probably wrote that because I had just experienced that with Euphoria. Euphoria, it's true that the, the, one of the first things I knew about these three anthropologists and, you know, Papua New Guinea in 1931 was that they had a, like a, a breakthrough, kind of a scientific breakthrough they felt. It was a little hallucinatory. And a lot of things happened that night, like all of their issues. It's a big love triangle, you know, everything kind of explodes that night. And I I wrote everything, everything, everything up to it. And then I, I felt myself stalling, you know, like I just felt my, I, I could tell I, I, I was so worried that it wasn't going to come off the way I saw it in my head. You know, 
know, and the way I'd been excited about it for the entire process of writing the book. And if that couldn't come off, then the rest was not going to work. And, uh, but yeah, so I, 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 I stall. Yeah. I mean, because it is, because when you have this idea in your head, before you write the first word, this idea is perfect. It is everything yeah. you want yeah. it to be. And then you realize that you've only got, you know, 26 letters and you've got some punctuation marks and that's what you've got to, that is the alchemy yeah. you have to make this vision come alive on the page. Yeah. Oh yeah. And yeah, well it, yeah, it can be, it can be absolutely terrifying. So when you do those kinds of scenes, do you then just keep coming back to them to try and make them as perfect as you can? At what point do you know you need to put your hands up and just walk the hell away from them? Yeah. I, 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 I just hack my way through it the first time and then I just keep going, you know? I mean, that's, that's really, I think what I've learned from going from a short story writer where I like carefully, carefully, you know, made everything perfect as I went along to just like blowing through a novel, you know, you just, with that first draft, you just have to keep going. You have to keep the momentum going. So I would try to, I, I would go through a scene like that and then just head on to the end. And then in the second draft, apprehensively read it and hope that it wasn't as bad as I thought it was. And then, and yeah, just keep on working, working and trying to get a fresh eye by putting it aside for a couple of weeks and then coming back to it and reading it as a reader and really trying to, to see how it feels and, uh, you know, try, try to just experience it through the, ex- through the, you know, the, the wholeheartedness of a, of a reader coming to it the first time. And, uh, and, you know, many drafts, many, many drafts <laughs> trying to get it right. I sometimes wish as a writer that I could have selective amnesia so that you could write something and then forget you wrote it and come I back know. to see it with fresh eyes so that you can actually objectively look at it. But, you know, that's so difficult because you just can't. You've lost all objectivity along the way. Yeah, no, it's so true. It's so true. There's something here that I also wanted to read, which was all of Casey's rejections. So you put them on one page here. <laughs> uh-huh. And it, so just to read, it starts, while we admire the scope of, we are grateful for the look at. Your project did not strike a chord. This was not quite right for. Unfortunately, at this time, we aren't. Thank you for your submission, but we appreciate you thinking of us. We did not feel passionate enough. And all of the listeners out there who've been out on submission, who wait for weeks, sometimes months mm-hmm. to get feedback from an agent and this it suddenly pops in your inbox. Okay, with Casey, she was getting them posted back to her because the story takes place back when snail mail was, was the way to do these things. I remember going out on submission and posting out whole manuscripts, which tells me how long I've been pottering around at this. But it, it's, it's amazing how we scan that, that response and we're looking for the howevers, the buts that it wasn't for us. And you had to really go far back in your writing career to, to <laughs> channel that, Lily, right? Well, not that, it doesn't feel that far away, definitely. It was so easy. I, I didn't even have to like go back to my old rejection letters or anything like that. It, they just, I, I think I wrote that in about five minutes because I just remember, I just remember, and I remember how it felt, especially the last one, the passionate one. I remember getting that for my first novel and, and I completely understood, you know, of course you need to feel passionate about the novel, but I couldn't, it, it was just, it was so painful to me that, that, that my novel had not elicited a passionate response. Yeah. <laughs> Something worse about that than any of the other phrases. Right. I mean, cause it's just like, it, it's the, it's the rejection equivalent of meh, you know, just like meh. It's like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, poured, 
I've poured my heart and soul into this and it meant nothing to you kind of yeah. thing. Um, and but- with Casey and with me at the same time that I was getting all these rejection letters, you know, I was also just getting my heart broken. Like I would be in relationships and it wouldn't work out. And, you know, it just felt like rejection all over the place. And, and, and that's a really hard thing when you're a young person, you know, yeah, rejection compounded with interest, man, it's <laughs> that stuff adds up. And then there's this other section here as well that I really related to. So after she's finished the book and she sent it off, she tries to start something new. And it says, I tried to write something new. It's bad. And I stop after a few sentences, even though I didn't feel it at the time, I got into a rhythm with the old novel. I knew those characters and how to write them. I heard their voices. I saw their gestures and anything else feels fake and stiff. I ache for them. People I also once felt were stiff and fake, but who now seem like the only people I could ever write about. Yeah, I feel that way. I mean, (laughs) I, I gave all I gave Casey all my feelings about writing. Yeah, I very much feel that way. I mean, I'm just about to transition to another novel, and uh, and it's true. You you don't realize how comfortable you feel until you have to let go and start something new. It's a weird weird thing. Yeah. Well, you've been talking to your imaginary friends for so long that they, you know, they feel real, and suddenly you've got to. It's like being at a cocktail party, and you have to insert yourself into another group of people and start talking to them. It's so you know? true. And it's kind of awkward, and you don't want to do it and Uh, yeah 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 and you don't know if they're gonna like you and you're gonna like them it's gonna be click click and oh terrible (laughs) yeah yeah all of that so we're at the end of a half hour Lily I can't believe it the time has flown but you know I just feel there's so much relatable about you your you know your experiences in terms of publishing and so much in terms of Casey that our listeners can really relate to there's so much of that rejection there's so much of that self-doubt but you know at the end of my podcast, I have this line that says, you know, keep at it. It only takes one yes. Mm. Uh, And, you know, that's the thing for Casey that changes her life. And I feel like for every writer, you know, you got your one yes that changed everything for you. Um, And and every published writer has that along the way. So is is there any words of advice, any words of wisdom that you would like to leave with emerging writers as they go through this this whole process of, of rejection, trying again? I just urge you to to have discipline and conviction and just stay with it. Don't give up. And, you know, I always quote the Nike quote, just do it. I feel like you just have to do it. Uh, You know, there's, there's so many ways to procrastinate and think your way around writing and blame others and blame yourself and blame your job and blame your boss and your kids and all that kind of stuff. But the truth is you just have to sit down and do the work. And if you're getting rejected, just sit down and keep doing some other work, you know, while you're waiting for to hear a yes. I just, I just, I think the, the, the more you write, the better you're going to feel. <laughs> the only way out is through and there are no shortcuts. So yeah. definitely bum in the chair. And I love that as you were giving us that upbeat cheerleading sentiment, I could hear birds chirping in the background, which <laughs> sounded very chipper and upbeat as well. <laughs> Oh, that's great. <laughs> it, felt, it felt apt. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us, Lily. I hope I get to speak to you again down the line uh, and good luck with the, with the new novel. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. And that's it for today's episode. If you have any questions about writing or publishing, please email me at theshitaboutwriting at gmail.com and I'll do my best to get them answered for you. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes.
Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six module, 10 hour course with all my knowledge. And that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Calling all memoirists. I'm so excited to let you know that I've put together an incredible all about memoir lineup for Saturday the 11th of May from 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. Eastern Time, in which six amazing speakers guide you through everything you need to know to write a memoir that will sell. You'll get opportunities to ask questions of best-selling memoirists, while also standing a chance to have your query letter live critiqued during the webinar. To see the awesome lineup and to register, go to biancamaray.com. There's an early bird promotion for the first 50 delegates who sign up. Come and join us and get your memoir groove on. Did you know that 70% of all books are sold online via e-commerce? If you're an author wondering how you can get some of that market share, this is for you. Hi, I'm your co-host Carly Waters, and I'm here to tell you how writers can work on their author brand to build an audience and convert those followers into book buyers. Do you ever wonder why so many authors publish their books and later say they didn't sell as many copies as they wanted? It happens over and over, and it's all over social media. Authors really think it's a them problem, but not always. They really just weren't shown the way. And I don't want you guys to launch a book and show up at book events and have two people in the chairs. I have helped clients launch books to the bestseller list for over 15 years. I have now built a six-module, 10-hour course with all my knowledge, and that will give you the craft and book business information that you won't find anywhere else. And there's an app. Over 100 of you have already joined my new course. And writer Siobhan Moore said, I'm halfway through the course and grieving that I didn't have this information sooner. There's really nowhere else to find it. Worth every penny. Thank you, Siobhan. If you want all that info and everything that will change the course of your writing career, go to carlywaters.com slash course to learn more and use discount code POD15 for the month of April at checkout. That's POD, P-O-D 15 at checkout over at carlywaters.com slash course. Hi everyone, this is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. 
We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.